Uh, Revelation 6 and 7 is what we're going to read. So, if you've got one of the Pew Bibles, it's page 1237, 1237, Revelation 6 and 7. And we're really thinking mostly of chapter 6 and the first part of chapter 7 this evening. This little section, Revelation, is broken into a number of sections that sort of repeat themselves and intensify the themes one after the other. But this section really begins in chapter 4 and runs on to the end of chapter 7, in fact, into beginning of chapter 8. And uh, John has a vision. The letters have been written to the churches, and he has a, a vision, and it says, After this I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven, and the voice I heard speaking to me uh, like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. So he has a vision after the letters to the churches of, from his perspective of the future. He sees into the throne room of God. He sees God on the throne. God has a scroll which contains the plans of God for humanity. And no one is found worthy to open the scroll. And then in chapter 5, the Lion of Judah, who is the Lamb who was slain, he is the one who takes the scroll, in other words, to enact the plans and purposes of God. And the scroll has been sealed up with seven seals, and then the seals begin to be opened. And that's what happens in chapters 6 and 7, which we're going to read now. As, as the Lamb takes the scroll, there is great praise and worship in heaven, and then the seals are Roman. So, we're going to uh, read from Revelation chapter 6 from verse 1, remembering this is God's Word. I watched as the Lamb opened the first of the seven seals. Then I heard one of the four living creatures say in a voice like thunder, come. I, I looked, and there before me was a white horse. Its rider held a bow, and he was given a crown, and he rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest. When the Lamb opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. Then another horse came out, a fiery red one. Its rider was given power to take peace from the earth and to make men slay each other. To him was given a large sword. When the Lamb opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come. I looked, and there before me was a black horse. Its rider was holding a pair of scales in his hand. Then I heard what sounded like a voice among the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a day's wages, and three quarts of barley for a day's wages, and do not damage the oil and the wine. When the Lamb opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. I looked, and there before me was a pale horse. Its rider was named Death, and Hades was following close behind him. They were given power over a fourth of the earth to kill by sword, famine, and plague, and by the wild beasts of the earth. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. They called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Then each of them was given a white robe, and they were told to wait a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and brothers who were to be killed as they had been 
was completed. I watched as he opened the sixth seal. There was a great earthquake. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair. The whole moon turned blood red, and the stars in the sky fell to earth as late figs drop from a fig tree when shaken by a strong wind. The sky receded like a scroll rolling up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and every slave and every free man hid in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. They called to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth to prevent any wind from blowing on the land or on the sea or on any tree. Then I saw another angel coming up from the east, having the seal of the living God. He called out in a loud voice to the four angels who'd been given power to harm the land and the sea. Do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. Then I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel. From the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. From the tribe of Reuben, 12,000. From the tribe of Gad, 12,000. From the tribe of Asher, 12,000. From the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000. From the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000. From the tribe of Simeon, 12,000. From the tribe of Levi, 12,000. From the tribe of Issachar, 12,000. From the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000. From the tribe of Joseph, 12,000. From the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000. After this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels were standing round the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell down on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders asked me, These in white robes, who are they and where did they come from? I answered, Sir, you know. And he said, these are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve Him day and night in His temple. And He who sits on the throne will spread His tent over them. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat upon them, nor any scorching heat, for the Lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Amen. We trust that God will bless His Word. What a joy it is to read those words together. Isn't it fantastic? Just to allow God's Word to encourage our hearts. Well, let's turn together to Revelation 6 and 7, page 1237. I missed, we missed to announce a supper club. So we have supper club on tonight. If you are primary school age and you want to be out in 105, then uh, please do slip out there. A couple of folk out there uh, already. So Revelation 6 and 7. You, you may know the, 
anthem of the Rugby World Cup is that song, World in Union. You know, you know that song? Beautiful uh, tune from Host Jupiter. And it seeks to celebrate the undoubtedly unifying effect of sport and uh, rugby in particular. You knock the pan out of a few friends, and then you retire to the pub, and, and everything's okay. And the last verse says this, it's the world in union, the world as one as we climb to reach our destiny, a new age has begun. And we gladly acknowledge every step that can be taken to strengthen the bonds of humanity across the world. But we know too, don't we, that that, that sort of lofty aspiration is really set against the reality of a backdrop of great disunity, indeed great turmoil. So tonight, I want to suggest to you that that we're not really thinking about a world in union, but a world in, in turmoil. Maybe you've heard somebody say recently, the world is a real mess, isn't it? Maybe you've said that yourself. Everything seems very unstable. There's so much change. And, and if you're a Christian, perhaps you wonder, maybe even if you're not a Christian, you maybe wonder, what is God doing? Not that you're, you're questioning Him as such, but that you are, are just finding it hard to comprehend what His purposes might possibly be in a world that is the sort of world that we live in. Now, now if we ask that sort of question, if we find that sort of question rising up in, in our minds, then we must recognize that other believers in other generations and in other places must have asked that question even more deeply than we have. I noticed this afternoon that that film, The Longest Day, was on, the film about the D-Day landings about 18 months ago. I had a bit of time to look through some of those little French villages just south of the Normandy coast, and there were different little exhibitions there of what they looked like in the war, and the devastation was absolutely dreadful. You imagine that you were a believing person in a French village just south of the Normandy beaches. The Germans had come and set up their, their center of operations right in the heart of your village. It had been incredibly difficult. There were members of the resistance shot and so on, and, and a great threat and, and sense of oppression all around you. And then the Allies come, and, and there's fierce fighting all around you. Your village is basically destroyed. And, and you may ask the question, where is God in, in all of these things? What, what is God doing? Or, or in a different age, in a different place. You're a believer in what would today be modern-day Italy in the middle of the second century. A terrible plague breaks out. We would think today it was smallpox. It lasted 15 years something like a quarter to a third of the entire Roman Empire died from that plague. But you're a believer. You cling on to the, the thought, that the, the truth that, that, that God is over all things, but you do ask the question, what is God doing? And, and tonight, I think we're, we're going to get a little way towards answering that question. It would have been a question that these first Christians who would have first heard this book of Revelation would have asked. Some of those who heard Re Revelation read in their churches in, the, in Asia Minor, they would live long enough to see dreadful persecution based, uh, break out 
against the Christians. We've suggested that some of them were already finding it hard to buy bread and these sorts of things, but, but some of them would, would go through terrible, terrible times. What is God doing? These are not uh, terribly easy chapters to understand. I hope we'll make them a little bit clearer tonight. H how we approach these chapters is going to be in some ways determined by how we approach the book of Revelation as a whole. Let me say a word about that. Because Revelation has been this sort of difficult book in, in the, the life of the church that lots of people have disagreed over, you won't be surprised to know that a number of people have taken quite different approaches to it. Some people, for example, see this book as a sort of step-by-step -step chronology. Chapter 1 is in the first century. Chapter 22 is well, whenever Jesus comes back, and, and, and we're somewhere in the middle, and that one thing sort of gives way to the next, to the next, to the next. That, that view's not so common now. It was pretty common in the Middle Ages. There are others who think that most of the book, actually from the section that we have looked at tonight from chapter 4, after the letters to the seven churches, that most of the rest of the book really all deals with the future, so we're sitting at the moment between uh, chapter 3, the end of chapter 3, and the beginning of chapter 4. Uh, none of the things that, that are described here have happened yet. They're all future. And, and broadly, that's what's going to happen in some sort of step-by-step -step way. If you've read any of the left-behind books, uh, you really have wasted your time, but uh, you... you uh, would be working within that sort of a framework if that was the case. Now, those have not been the ways that we've been approaching this book. We've been thinking in a different way. We understand that this whole book, from Revelation 1 to Revelation 22, it all refers to the time between Christ's first and second coming. It's what the Bible refers to as the last days. You know, sometimes people will say, oh, did you hear about such and such, that earthquake or whatever? We really must be living in the last days. And you can say confidently, yes, you are. We really are. We have been for the last 2,000 years. Um, we know what people mean by that. We, we know that people mean that Jesus is about to come back. But if we're to use that phrase in its biblical sense, then we are living in the last days from the time that Jesus ascended to glory until the time that He returns. And we believe that, that this book of Revelation refers to that whole period of the last days, the time between Jesus' first and second coming. And it had a particular reference, of course, to the churches in Asia, these letters that were written to the churches in Asia, real historical churches, but representative of, of the church in every age too. And so the whole book is about the time between Christ's coming. And what it does is it gives us little clips of that period again and again and again, each one with a theme of, of seven, you know, seven bowls, seven trumpets, seven seals, and so on. And, and, and so, uh, some of you are, are great Match of the Day fans, and you know what this is like. You, you, you see some action on, on the football field, 
And what happens afterwards is that that same thing is replayed again and again. Sometimes the camera is focusing on a particular player. Sometimes it's focusing on the defense. Sometimes it's, it's the wide view to see where everybody is on the pitch and so on. But, but you see that again and again. And, and sort of that's what Revelation really does for us. But all within that f- framework of the entire time between Christ's first and second comings. Well, in this first clip that we have sort of referred to in our reading from four until the end of seven, uh, we've seen that, that John looks into the throne room of heaven, the Lamb takes the scroll uh, which contains the plans of God for humanity, for His church, and He begins to open them in chapter six. And, and what Revelation is doing here is giving us this behind-the-scenes view of what we live in today. This is not what's happening in the future. This is not going to happen tomorrow. This is what we've been living in today. And it's not that, that one seal gives way to the next to the next chronologically. They, they, they all build together to show us from behind the scenes what is happening now, or most of them do. So, what is God doing? What is God allowing in this world? Well, we're going to just break up roughly what we're saying tonight with these four little titles. There's turmoil, there's longing, there's judgment, but there's also safety. That's where we're going. Christ opens the first seal, chapter 6, at the beginning And each time he opens a seal, there's a corresponding vision for John, something that corresponds with the opening of the seal. And in the first four seals, they are aligned with four horses, each of which has four riders. These are the four horsemen of the apocalypse, right? Uh, All sorts of uh, possible titles for this evening's talk, Apocalypse Now, all sorts of interesting uh, possibilities. But but here, here, this is that you've heard of the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Here they are. There are four different colors, at least the horses are white, red, black, and pale green, or really ashen, and, and they're linked perhaps to the vision of four colored horses in Zechariah 6. You can have a look at that sometime. So there's a white horse. He has a rider to which a crown and a bow is given, and he comes to conquer and to conquest. Now, later on in Revelation 19, uh, Jesus himself rides a white horse. Some people have thought that, that this is actually a picture of Jesus Christ. Some really good Bible scholars have thought this, but in Revelation 19, Christ there has many crowns. He has a sword. And it seems here that this rider, this horse, is associated with the other horses that bring harm upon the earth. So I think it's better to take these four together. So here is a, 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 a theme of conquest. It's, it's one kingdom rising up and, and seeking to overrun another nation. Then there's a red horse. He's permitted, the rider of the red horse is permitted to take peace from the earth so that people slay one another. Here's a representation of war. The black horse comes, and as he comes, there's a voice that calls out, uh, as you can see um, in uh, in chapter uh, 6, verse 6, a quart of wheat or a 
a, a bushel of wheat for a day's wages and three quarts of barley for a day's wages. Now, a day's wages, a denarius, maybe some of you have in your translations. A, a denarius was a, a day's wages, and the idea here is that somebody spends all that they have on grain. Now, actually, in Asia Minor, where the churches were, the economy produced quite well its own oil and grapes. So, oil and wine were sort of in fairly secure supply. But, but grain was imported largely. It was imported from the great grain baskets of, of uh, uh, the Roman Empire from uh, what would be Ukraine today and, and uh, North Africa. And uh, prices, therefore, could be a little bit volatile. The supply was not always secure. So they knew something of the, the volatility of the grain market. But here's a terrible situation where you either spend everything you've earned that day on slightly better quality grain, wheat, for yourself, one portion, or if you have a family to feed, you buy the lower quality uh, barley. It's like, do you eat steak yourself or do you get mince and give it to the kids? You know, you're, it's going to be one or the other, isn't it? But here you are, you, you've, had to, you've had to spend everything on food, nothing left over. So here's a picture of food shortage. And then this pale ashen horse, it's sort of maybe a pale green even, the color of sort of, of, uh, of death, of illness and death. It represents death. People die by sword and famine and plague. And, and by wild beasts, or maybe by nature. So you can see that, that, that here's a picture building up. These four horsemen who come out together, one after the other, they, 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 it speaks of catastrophe, of, of death, of the sorts of trouble and turmoil that comes upon the world as nations are in uproar against nations, as, as food shortages come, as death comes as a result of that. And it speaks about the fact that perhaps natural disasters and disease sometimes ravage the earth. So, you remember what this is. This is the opening of God's plan for humanity between the time that Jesus left for heaven and, and the time that He returns. And it tells us that this national uproar and brokenness, this general brokenness of the world that, that we sometimes think is is a blip on the journey that this is not random nor accidental, but an expected reality that is still under the plans of God. And if you were to ask, why does God allow such things, our, our answers are really tentative and, and sketchy from our viewpoint, even from our understandings of the Scriptures. But part of it might be that God is allowing arrogant nations and empires to rise up and then sweeping them away in order to judge their arrogance and independence. Part of the answer might be that God allows humanity to see and feel the effects of its rebellion in order that they might not put their hope in what has been made, but in Him. Part of it is the beginnings of God's judgment upon the earth. Arrogant nations rise, empires are built, God causes them to fall, and in doing this, God is bringing His judgment to bear upon the earth. He allows turmoil and the uproar of the nations. We will see in a number of weeks all being well how 
God in his majesty is so great that he can use evil in his plans and purposes. And yet, as, as evil men fulfill God's purposes, the evil and the sin is, is entirely theirs. They willfully choose these paths, and they find themselves walking in the very plans of God. Now, there are two ways you can look at that. You can look at that and say, so how does God do that? That's not the way to look at it. The other way to look at it is to go, wow, isn't God amazing? Now, you notice too, however, that, that, that this rebellion of the earth, or in the earth, is limited. So, in verse 8, for example, death and Hades are, are restricted to a quarter of the earth. That's not perhaps meant to be taken with great significance in terms of its number, but it's just to say that it is limited. If God were to remove His restraint, chaos would be endless, and it would be limitlessly brittle. But all of this happens within the boundaries He has set. Jesus spoke about this with His disciples. He didn't talk about four horsemen, but He talked about the same effects of what they bring. Luke chapter 21, verse 9, when you hear of wars and uprisings, do not be frightened. These things must happen first, but the end will not come right away. Then He said to them, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes, famines, and pestilences in various places, and fearful events and great signs from heaven. You see, Jesus is just describing the time between His leaving and His coming again. It's a world, not a world of union, but a world of turmoil, nations in uproar, mankind building up His empires, and God causing them to crumble. He's in charge, you see. Here's what one writer says. As Christians see societies crumble, maybe we're seeing that today. As Christians see societies crumble and collapse, our response should not be terrified alarm. As though our security were bound up with a fragile human network of law and order, but anticipation and confidence, the Lamb is now on the throne with God's plan for history firmly in His hand. turmoil. Fifth seal is then opened, and here we see things from a different angle. The camera moves to a different place. Verse 9, we, we see that when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the Word of God and the testimony they had maintained. Here are the souls of the martyrs. They are below the altar. They have given their lives. They have laid out their lives for the Lord, and they are crying out for justice. Later on, we'll see that the prayers of the martyrs and their vindication are linked to the judgments of God upon those who dwell on the earth. You notice that they, they cry out, Sovereign Lord, holy and true. How long, Sovereign? Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood. Now, the inhabitants of the earth are not everybody on the earth. They are those who are, as it were, sold out on the earth's order. In other words, they are people living in rebellion against God, not the church. The inhabitants of the earth are, are those in rebellion against God. And they cry out, asking this question, why is this not ending? What's going on? Show yourself to be king now. 
And you see what happens in verse 11. Each of them was given a white robe, and they were told to wait a little longer until the full number of their fellow servants, their brothers and sisters, were killed just as they had been. So you see what happens. They cry out for justice. They cry out for God to intervene. And God tells them to rest and tells them that there will be more like them. There will be more martyrs. This is so very alien to us, isn't it? We sometimes say, you know, that, that God has a final number of the church in mind and time will roll on until they're all gathered in. That's correct. But what we see here too is that God has a final number of martyrs in mind. There are more who will lay down their lives just because of the Word of God and their testimony. Well, a sixth seal is opened. And here the action changes in a very significant way. Here we're sort of fast-forwarding to the end of the game, as it were. And the, here's a description, really, of Christ's return. You, you could see, as, as we read some of the... Um, those verses, that, 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 you know, God wiping every tear from their eyes, just like Revelation 21, 22. So, 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 these things are repeated again and again within this book of Revelation. But here we're seeing the end. It's a description of Christ's return. His second coming is not like His first. He comes to judge the earth, and on that day, there are no unbelievers, if you want to say it like that, Everyone knows the reality of his return, and they hide. Verse 15, the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and everyone else, both slave and free, hid in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. So here are the elites of the earth. Those who have had the earth at their feet, they now look for a place in the earth to hide. And everyone else. Look at what they cry, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. Sometimes people say, you know, when Christ comes back, maybe there'll be a second chance. I've known some people who are holding God at arm's length, and that's what they're pinning their hopes on. They firmly believe that Jesus will come back, and they think they'll do something about it then. That is nowhere suggested in the Bible. And you notice here that even those who see Him then do not run to Him in repentance. They cower from Him in ongoing rebellion. In other words, it is not ignorance that keeps us from the Lord. It is hostility. So, what a picture. What is going on in the world? Turmoil. Saints longing for God's intervention. And there is judgment. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes, famines, and pestilences in various places, fearful events, signs from heaven. You see, it has always been like this. These things are not the exception to human history. They are part of what God says 
will characterize the time between Jesus' first and second coming. Sixth seal speaks about Jesus' second coming. The rest speaks about how it is between His first and second coming. And of course, this doesn't mean that we, we cheer on war and pestilence. We know that, that we are to live for what God loves in the midst of this. So while we are to be realistic about war and conflict, we are to be what? Peacemakers. While we are to be realistic about famine and the poor always being with us, we are to be those who feed the hungry. But we're not to be surprised that we're in a world in turmoil. Well, you see at the end of this bleak of bleak chapters, when God is shaking the earth, allowing the earth, as it were, to, to feel the result of its choices, which tells of the dreadful day of His coming, an obvious question is asked. It's the last words of chapter 7, of chapter 6, sorry. Who can stand? Who can stand? In the light of the, the great realities of the brokenness and rebellion of this world, of the coming of the rightful king of the earth in such a way that our kings and generals will search out and abandon their, their, they will abandon their palaces and they will search for holes in the ground. In the light of that, who can possibly stand? Where, where is security to be found in a world of turmoil and a world which will be judged? Well, chapter 7 tells us about that. And that's really why we've read it tonight. We'll say just a word or two about it. We'll, we'll visit it again more fully. But it tells us, as we can read very easily, about God's people, about the church. The church can stand. The church, in fact, can not only stand, but it is incredibly secure, even in the midst of all of this turmoil. There's another clip, you see. It doesn't happen after what we've seen. We've got to sort of put questions of chronology sort of out of our heads a little bit whenever we're dealing with Revelation. Things cut back and forward like a complicated film. And, and this cuts back to something that has happened already. It looks like the four winds of chapter 7, verse 1, are a way of describing the four horsemen. Theirs is the same work of harming the earth. And what we see in the opening of chapter 7 happens before they have done their work, as it were. Four angels are holding them back. Why are they holding them back? Look at chapter 7, verse 3. Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. The angel, verse 2, ascends from the rising of the sun from the east, presumably, with the seal of the living God. A seal, in this case, marks out ownership. We read in other parts in the Scriptures that we are sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. In, in chapter 14 of Revelation and verse 1, we find that here this seal is the name of the Lord. Chapter 14, then I looked and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb and with Him 144,000 who had His name and His Father's name written on their foreheads. Now, now we're going to take, as I say, some time next time all being well, to, to look at the remainder of this chapter. 
And we're going to see that the 144,000, these tribes that are listed here, really, I think, stand for the church. This is God's people. And the picture is repeated then in a different way, this great throng from every nation and tribe and language later on in the chapter. But you see what this is saying? The time between Jesus leaving and coming again is going to be a time of turmoil, a time of war and uncertainty and pestilence and difficulty, but it will be a time when God will mark out and protect those who are His. He already has. They will have His name on them. They will not be lost. Who can stand in this world of turmoil? The church can stand those with God's name on them. You see, they are sealed before this turmoil ever takes place. God already knows who they are. God is building a people, you see, and they will not be lost. The wrath that will be visited on the rebellious of the earth will not sever the people of God from His love and care. They are sealed with His seal. This is what Paul says in Romans chapter 8. Do you know those verses? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, neither angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is what Top Lady wrote about in his old hymn that's so difficult to sing, otherwise we would sing it, A Debtor to Mercy Alone. My name from the palms of his hands, eternity will not erase. Impressed on his heart it remains in marks of indelible grace. Yes, I to the end shall endure as sure as the earnest is given, more happy but not more secure, the glorified spirits in heaven. Is the world a mess? Oh, yes. Is, is nation rising against nation? Yes, it is. Is it outside the plan of God? Not for a moment. Can we be confident that He will keep us in the turmoil? Absolutely. You going into a difficult week? If you stumbled into church today, you feel as if you're just holding on to God by the slenderest sliver. If you're a believer, He has sealed you from before any of this began to happen, and He will keep you so you run to Him. Let's pray.